Volume Two, Part Twelve of Herodotus Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Leeson. Histories, Volume Two, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus, translated by A. D. Godley. Volume Two, Part Twelve. This, then, is the course of action which the Athenians took, and the Thebans, desiring vengeance on Athens, afterwards appealed to Delphi for advice. The Pythian priestess said that the Thebans themselves would not be able to obtain the vengeance they wanted, and that they should lay the matter before the many-voiced and entreat their nearest. Upon the return of the envoys, an assembly was called and the oracle put before it. When the Thebans heard that they must entreat their nearest, they said, If this is so, our nearest neighbors are the men of Tanagra and Coronia and Thespi. These are always our comrades in battle and zealously wage our wars. What need, then, is there to entreat them? Perhaps this is the meaning of the oracle. They reasoned in this way, till at last one understood, and said, I think that I perceive what the oracle is trying to tell us. Thebae and Egina, it is said, were daughters of Asopus and sisters. The god's answer is, I think, that we should ask the Egynetans to be our avengers. Seeing that there seemed to be no better option before them than this, they sent straight away to entreat the Egynetans and invite their aid, since this was the oracle's bidding, and the Egynetans were their nearest. These replied to their demand that they were sending the sons of Iacus in aid. The Thebans took the field on the strength of their alliance with that family, but were soundly beaten by the Athenians. Thereupon they sent a second message to Egina, giving back the sons of Iacus and asking for some men instead. The Egynetans, who were enjoying great prosperity and remembered their old feud with Athens, accordingly made war on the Athenians at the entreaty of the Thebans without sending a herald. While the Athenians were busy with the Boeotians, they descended on Attica in ships of war, and ravaged Pharalon and many other seaboard townships. By so doing they dealt the Athenians a very shrewd blow. This was the beginning of the Egynetans' long-standing debt of enmity against the Athenians. The Epidorians' land bore no produce. For this reason they inquired at Delphi concerning this calamity, and the priestess bade them set up images of Damia and Oxesia, saying that if they did so their luck would be better. The Epidorians then asked in addition whether they should make the images of bronze or of stone, and the priestess bade them do neither, but make them of the wood of the cultivated olive. So the men of Epidorus asked the Athenians to permit them to cut down some olive trees, supposing the olives there to be the holiest. Indeed, it is said that at that time there were no olives anywhere save at Athens. The Athenians consented to give the trees, if the Epidorians would pay yearly sacred dues to Athena, the city's goddess, and to Erechtheus. The Epidorians agreed to this condition, and their request was granted. When they set up images made of these olive trees, their land brought forth fruit, and they fulfilled their agreement with the Athenians. Now at this time, as before it, the Egynetans were in all matters still subject to the Epidorians and even crossed to Epidorus for the hearing of their own private lawsuits. 
From this time, however, they began to build ships, and stubbornly revolted from the Epidorians. In the course of this struggle, they did the Epidorians much damage and stole their images of Damia and Oxesia. These they took away and set them up in the middle of their own country at a place called Oya, about twenty furlongs distant from their city. Having set them up in this place, they sought their favor with sacrifices and female choruses in the satirical and abusive mode. Ten men were appointed providers of a chorus for each of the deities, and the choruses aimed their raillery not at any men, but at the women of the country. The Epidorians, too, had the same rights, and they have certain secret rights as well. When these images were stolen, the Epidorians ceased from fulfilling their agreement with the Athenians. Then the Athenians sent an angry message to the Epidorians, who pleaded in turn that they were doing no wrong. For as long, they said, as we had the images in our country, we fulfilled our agreement. Now that we are deprived of them, it is not just that we should still be paying. Ask your dues of the men of Egina, who have the images. The Athenians therefore sent to Egina and demanded that the images be restored, but the Egynetans answered that they had nothing to do with the Athenians. The Athenians report that, after making this demand, they dispatched one trireme with certain of their citizens who, coming in the name of the whole people to Egina, attempted to tear the images, as being made of Attic wood, from their bases so that they might carry them away. When they could not obtain possession of them in this manner, they tied cords around the images with which they could be dragged. While they were attempting to drag them off, they were overtaken both by a thunderstorm and an earthquake. This drove the trireme's crew to such utter madness that they began to slay each other, as if they were enemies. At last only one of all was left, who returned by himself to Phalerum. This is the Athenian version of the matter. But the Egynetans say that the Athenians came not in one ship only, for they could easily have kept off a single ship, or several for that matter, even if they had no navy themselves. The truth was, they said, that the Athenians descended upon their coasts with many ships, and that they yielded to them without making a fight of it at sea. They are not able to determine clearly whether it was because they admitted to being weaker at sea fighting that they yielded, or because they were planning what they then actually did. When, as the Egynetans say, no man came out to fight with them, the Athenians disembarked from their ships and turned their attention to the images. Unable to drag them from the bases, they fastened cords on them and dragged them until they both, this I cannot believe, but another might, fell on their knees. Both have remained in this position ever since. This is what the Athenians did, but the Egynetans say that they discovered that the Athenians were about to make war upon them, and therefore assured themselves of help from the Argives. So when the Athenians disembarked on the land of Egina, the Argives came to aid the Egynetans, crossing over from Epidorus to the island secretly. They then fell upon the Athenians unaware and cut them off from their ships. It was at this moment that the thunderstorm and earthquake came upon them. This, then, is the story told by the Argives and Egynetans, and the Athenians, too, acknowledge that only one man of their number returned safely to Attica. The Argives, however, say that he escaped after they had destroyed the rest of the Athenian force, while the Athenians claim that the whole thing was to be attributed to divine power. This one man did not survive, but perished in the following manner. 
it would seem that he made his way to Athens and told of the mishap. When the wives of the men who had gone to attack Egina heard this, they were very angry that he alone should be safe. They gathered round him and stabbed him with the brooch-pins of their garments, each asking him where her husband was. This is how the man met his end, and the Athenians found the action of their women to be more dreadful than their own misfortune. They could find, it is said, no other way to punish the women than changing their dress to the Ionian fashion. Until then the Athenian women had worn Dorian dress, which is very like the Corinthian. It was changed, therefore, to the linen tunic, so that they might have no brooch-pins to use. The truth of the matter, however, is that this form of dress is not in its origin Ionian, but Carian, for in ancient times all women in Greece wore the costume now known as Dorian. As for the Argives and Egynetans, this was the reason of their passing a law in both their countries that brooch-pins should be made half as long as they used to be, and that brooches should be the principal things offered by women in the shrines of these two goddesses. Furthermore, nothing else Attic should be brought to the temple, not even pottery, and from that time on only drinking vessels made in the country should be used. Ever since that day even to my time the women of Argos and Egina wore brooch-pins longer than before by reason of the feud with the Athenians. The enmity of the Athenians against the Egynetans began as I have told, and now at the Thebans' call the Egynetans came readily to the aid of the Boeotians, remembering the matter of the images. While the Egynetans were laying waste to the seaboard of Attica, the Athenians were setting out to march against them, but an oracle from Delphi came to them bidding them to restrain themselves for thirty years after the wrongdoing of the Egynetans, and in the thirty-first to mark out a precinct for Iacus and begin the war with Egina. In this way their purpose would prosper. If, however, they sent an army against their enemies straight away, they would indeed subdue them in the end, but would in the meantime both suffer and do many things. When the Athenians heard this reported to them, they marked out for Iacus that precinct which is now set in their marketplace, but they could not stomach the order that they must hold their hand for thirty years, seeing that the Egynetans had dealt them a foul blow. As they were making ready for vengeance, a matter which took its rise in Lacedaemon hindered them, for when the Lacedaemonians heard of the plot of the Alcmeonids with the Pythian priestess, and of her plot against themselves and the Pisistratidae, they were very angry for two reasons, namely that they had driven their own guests and friends from the country they dwelt in, and that the Athenians showed them no gratitude for their doing so. Furthermore, they were spurred on by the oracles which foretold that many deeds of enmity would be perpetrated against them by the Athenians. Previously they had had no knowledge of these oracles, but now Cleomenes brought them to Sparta, and the Lacedaemonians learned their contents. It was from the Athenian Acropolis that Cleomenes took the oracles, which had been in the possession of the Pisistratidae earlier. When they were exiled, they left them in the temple from where they were retrieved by Cleomenes. Now the Lacedaemonians, when they regained the oracles and saw the Athenians increasing in power and in no way inclined to obey them, realized that if the Athenians remained free, they would be equal in power with themselves, but that if they were held down under tyranny, they would be weak and ready to serve a master. Perceiving all this, 
they sent to bring Pisistratus' son Hippias from Sigeum on the Hellespont, the Pisistratides' place of refuge. When Hippias arrived, the Spartans sent for envoys from the rest of their allies and spoke to them as follows. Sirs, our allies, we do acknowledge that we have acted wrongly, for, led astray by lying divinations, we drove from their native land men who were our close friends and promised to make Athens subject to us. Then we handed that city over to a thankless people which had no sooner lifted up its head in the freedom which we gave it, than it insolently cast out us and our king. Now it has bred such a spirit of pride and is growing so much in power, that its neighbors in Boeotia and Chalcis have really noticed it, and others too will soon recognize their error. Since we erred in doing what we did, we will now attempt with your aid to avenge ourselves on them. It is on this account and no other that we have sent for Hippias, whom you see, and have brought you from your cities, namely that uniting our counsels and our power, we may bring him to Athens and restore that which we took away. These were the words of the Lacedaemonians, but their words were ill-received by the greater part of their allies. The rest then keeping silence, Socles, a Corinthian, said, In truth heaven will be beneath the earth, and the earth aloft above the heaven, and men will dwell in the sea and fishes where men dwelt before, now that you, Lacedaemonians, are destroying the rule of equals and making ready to bring back tyranny into the cities, tyranny, a thing more unrighteous and bloodthirsty than anything else on this earth. If indeed it seems to you to be a good thing that the cities be ruled by tyrants, set up a tyrant among yourselves first, and then seek to set up such for the rest. As it is, however, you, who have never made trial of tyrants and take the greatest precautions that none will arise at Sparta, deal wrongfully with your allies. If you had such experience of that thing as we have, you would be more prudent advisers concerning it than you are now." The Corinthian state was ordered in such manner as I will show. There was an oligarchy, and this group of men, called the Bacchiadi, held sway in the city, marrying and giving in marriage among themselves. Now Amphion, one of these men, had a crippled daughter whose name was Labda. Since none of the Bacchiadi would marry her, she was wedded to Etion, son of Echecrates, of the township of Petra a lapith by lineage and of the posterity of Cenius. When no sons were born to him by this wife or any other, he set out to Delphi to inquire concerning the matter of acquiring offspring. As soon as he entered, the Pythian priestess spoke these verses to him, Etion, worthy of honor, no man honors you. Labda is with child, and her child will be a millstone, which will fall upon the rulers and will bring justice to Corinth. This oracle which was given to Etion was in some way made known to the Bacchiadi. The earlier oracle sent to Corinth had not been understood by them, despite the fact that its meaning was the same as the meaning of the oracle of Etion, and it read as follows, An eagle in the rocks has conceived, and will bring forth a lion, strong and fierce. The knees of many will it loose. This consider well, Corinthians, you who dwell by lovely Pyrene and the overhanging heights of Corinth. This earlier prophecy had been unintelligible to the Bacchiadi, but as soon as they heard the one which was given to Etion, they understood it at once, recognizing its similarity with the oracle of Etion. 
Now understanding both oracles, they kept quiet but resolved to do away with the offspring of Etion. Then, as soon as his wife had given birth, they sent ten men of their clan to the township where Etion dwelt to kill the child. These men came to Petra and, passing into Etion's courtyard, asked for the child. Labda, knowing nothing of the purpose of their coming and thinking that they wished to see the baby out of affection for its father, brought it and placed it into the hands of one of them. Now they had planned on their way that the first of them who received the child should dash it to the ground. When, however, Labda brought and handed over the child, by divine chance it smiled at the man who took it. This he saw, and compassion prevented him from killing it. Filled with pity, he handed it to a second, and this man again to a third. In fact, it passed from hand to hand to each of the ten, for none would make an end of it. They then gave the child back to its mother, and after going out, they stood before the door reproaching and upbraiding one another, but chiefly him who had first received it since he had not acted in accordance with their agreement. Finally, they resolved to go in again and all have a hand in the killing. Fate, however, had decreed that Etion's offspring should be the source of ills for Corinth, for Labda, standing close to this door, heard all this. Fearing that they would change their minds and that they would take and actually kill the child, she took it away and hid it where she thought it would be hardest to find, in a chest, for she knew that if they returned and set about searching they would seek in every place, which in fact they did. They came and searched, but when they did not find it, they resolved to go off and say to those who had sent them that they had carried out their orders. They then went away and said this. Etion's son, however, grew up, and because of his escape from that danger, he was called Cypselus after the chest. When he had reached manhood and was seeking a divination, an oracle of double meaning was given him at Delphi. Putting faith in this, he made an attempt on Corinth and won it. The oracle was as follows. That man is fortunate who steps into my house. Zipselus, son of Etion, the king of noble Corinth, he himself and his children, but not the sons of his sons. Such was the oracle. Zipselus, however, when he had gained the tyranny, conducted himself in this way. Many of the Corinthians he drove into exile, many he deprived of their wealth, and by far the most he had killed. After a reign of thirty years, he died in the height of prosperity, and was succeeded by his son Periander. Now Periander was to begin with milder than his father, but after he had held converse by messenger with Thrasybulus, the tyrant of Miletus, he became much more bloodthirsty than Cypselus. He had sent a herald to Thrasybulus and inquired in what way he would best and most safely govern his city. Thrasybulus led the man who had come from Periander outside the town and entered into a sown field. As he walked through the corn, continually asking why the messenger had come to him from Corinth, he kept cutting off all the tallest ears of wheat which he could see and throwing them away until he had destroyed the best and richest part of the crop. Then, after passing through the place and speaking no word of counsel, he sent the herald away. When the herald returned to Corinth, Periander desired to hear what counsel he brought, but the man said that Thrasybulus had given him none. The herald added that it was a strange man to whom he had been sent, a madman and a destroyer of his own possessions, telling Periander what he had seen Thrasybulus do. 
periander however understood what had been done and perceived that thrasybulus had counseled him to slay those of his townsmen who were outstanding in influence or ability with that he began to deal with his citizens in an evil manner whatever act of slaughter or banishment cypselus had left undone that periander brought to accomplishment in a single day he stripped all the women of corinth naked because of his own wife melissa periander had sent messengers to the oracle of the dead on the river acheron in thesprotia to inquire concerning a deposit that a friend had left but melissa in an apparition said that she would tell him nothing nor reveal where the deposit lay for she was cold and naked the garments she said with which periander had buried with her had never been burnt and were of no use to her then as evidence for her husband that she spoke the truth she added that periander had put his loaves into a cold oven when this message was brought back to periander for he had had intercourse with the dead body of melissa and knew her token for true immediately after the message he made a proclamation that all the corinthian women should come out into the temple of hera they then came out as to a festival wearing their most beautiful garments and periander set his guards there and stripped them all alike ladies and serving women and heaped all the clothes in a pit where as he prayed to melissa he burnt them when he had done this and sent a second message the ghost of melissa told him where the deposit of the friend had been laid this then lacedaemonians is the nature of tyranny and such are its deeds we corinthians marveled greatly when we saw that you were sending for hippias and now we marvel yet more at your words to us we entreat you earnestly in the name of the gods of hellas not to establish tyranny in the cities but if you do not cease from so doing and unrighteously attempt to bring hippias back be assured that you are proceeding without the corinthians consent End of Volume 2, Part 12